This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, giving back. A former White House staffer turned billionaire financier follows his passion for history and respect for the presidency of the United States and gives $10 million to the White House Historical Association. David Rubenstein, president and CEO of the Carlyle Group, joins the conversation. And then through the lens of a master White House photographer, Diana Walker, Time Magazine made her a star she joins us today for a walk down memory lane. Rubenstein and Walker, up next on Polyoptics. History in the making. This is POTUS. POTUS. Sirius XM 124. Sometime next fall, on the closed section along Pennsylvania Avenue, under the auspices of the National Park Service, the Joint Committee on the Presidential Inaugural, and the Military District of Washington, a reviewing stand will begin to be erected as the first sign of the impending celebration of the inauguration of the President of the United States in January 2013. And whether that President will be Barack Obama or the nominee of the Republican Party, of course, remains to be seen. Whoever it is, the show must go on, and the 44th President will either be uh, getting sworn in for a second term in office, or the 45th President will begin his or her first. Well, Adam, that's continuity of government for you. The president and his accompanying entourage will then walk over a constructed walkway into the White House to begin the work of the nation for the next four years. And at the end of that day in January, 14 months from now, the president will retire from the West Wing after his long day of work, or her long day of work, if it's Michelle Bachman, to what's known as the executive mansion, probably riding a small leather-lined elevator to the second floor residence, America's most revered public housing development in the 235-year history of the Republic. The White House, uh, Josh, designed by Irish-born James Hoban and built between 1792 and 1800, has been home to every president since John Adams. As an antique, it's undergone periodic upkeep and sometimes dramatic renovations ever since. And it's been home to literally hundreds of thousands of stories that together comprise the American narrative. But, Adam, how can that narrative remain vibrant and relevant to today's citizens and students, and indeed to millions around the world who look to that place as a beacon of democracy worth emulating on every continent on the planet? The organization embracing this mission is the White House Historical Association a charitable nonprofit institution whose purpose is to enhance the understanding, appreciation, and, of course, enjoyment of the White House. And this year, the association turns 50 years old. It was begun in 61 at the behest of First Lady Jackie Kennedy and uh, launched with the association's first publication, The White House, A Historic Guide, which, by the way, Josh, I know you know this, is now in its 23rd edition, over 4.5 million copies in print. I know it, Adam, because one of those 4.5 million copies is in my possession. Uh, 
a circa 1972 edition that my parents bought for me on my first field trip to Washington and the White House. It's not a stretch to say that the book began a life for me, a lifelong fascination with and love of the White House and all that it represents, no matter which party controls it at any given moment. I think it's one of the things that drives our guest too. David Rubenstein, the co-founder and managing director of the Carlyle Group, who as a young man worked in Jimmy Carter's White House, is deputy domestic policy advisor working for Stu Eisenstadt. And this year, David announced, first to the First Lady of the United States, Michelle Obama, and then to the nation, a $10 million donation to the White House Historical Association to amplify the ability to continue and grow its work well into the 21st century into their next 50 years. It's an honor to welcome David to our broadcast and ask David, for starters, what your generosity will enable the association to do. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure to be here, and uh, I have listened to your show many times, and uh, I'm glad to be part of it. Um, The White House Historical Association, as you mentioned, uh, was really started by Jacqueline Kennedy. And interestingly, the guide you referred to was almost not uh, published because, as Jackie Kennedy uh, revealed in her book that just came out, Uh, The people at the White House said this would commercialize the uh, White House too much, and they very much were against having any little booklet about the White House. And uh, President Kennedy had to override uh, uh, his staff to let that first booklet come out. Uh, The White House is a place where I uh, spent uh, four years of my life. I was the first person in in beginning the Carter administration. I left the last day uh, when Ronald Reagan was coming in, and uh, it was a wonderful experience for me and probably not as great experience for the country since I managed to get inflation to 19% among other things. But I just felt that uh, it was one of the uh, most fortunate experiences you can have as a young person to work uh, for the President of the United States and to work in this historic uh, building. And so when I was presented by the White House Historical Association with the opportunity to give back something uh, to the country, I jumped at it and immediately said yes. In fact, I probably said yes so quickly. They said, now, let us finish the presentation. <laughs> uh, I said, no, no, I want to do this right away. You don't have to make the presentation. Just tell me where I sign. I want to do this, in part because um, I really felt it's important to have people know more about the house that I regard as the most famous house in, in the world and the house that uh, everybody recognizes and probably the most famous building in the United States. The purpose of the money is, is this. There will be a $25 million campaign uh, put together by the White House Historical Association to uh, improve the visitor center to the White House and to also improve, in effect, Decatur House. Decatur House is where the White House Historical Association is housed. Decatur House is in Jackson Square and um, Jackson Place. And it uh, is a, a historic house uh, that the White House Historical Association now has the authority to kind of more or less uh, operate. And in that house, they will um, digitize uh, all the works that they can of relating to the records of the White House, and they will try to use these records and other things to educate uh, young people and older people about the significance of the White House and to try to get the people uh, a better understanding of how many significant things happened at that White House. Uh, as you pointed out, um, uh, John Adams was the first president who lived there, and he didn't really love it there because in those days uh, there was nothing for him to really do, and he wanted to take a bath. He would have to go down to the Potomac and get washed there. Um, They didn't have a bathtub there until, uh, I think, uh, Millard Fillmore put the first bathtub in. 
And so there was many different things. And, of course, the building that we now see, the White House, is a building that was uh, changed tr tremendously uh, by Harry Truman. The building was originally built um, by President Washington overseeing it uh, with, as you said, Mr. Hoban, who was a uh, Scottish uh, architect, getting the design approval. But um, the building got worn out. And, of course, it was burned in the War of 1812. And when Harry Truman became president, he you know, his feet were like falling through the floors, and sometimes they realized it was unsafe. So he was moved out, and he lived at Blair House for most of his time in the White House when they completely and totally redid the White House. So what what is there now has historic uh, uh, artifacts in it, and it also has the layout of the historic White House, but it's actually relatively new on the, on the inside because they had to redo the whole thing. It took several years to do it. But it's a place that I hope every American has a chance at some point to visit. There are daily tours there. You can get tickets, I think, from members of Congress. And uh, what you see is uh, where the most famous people in, in our country's history have spent their time, uh, from Abraham Lincoln to Franklin Roosevelt to Ronald Reagan, J uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, all the Bushes who were president. Um, it's just a, it's a place that you you really uh, marvel at, at the, mo the most important things that have happened there. And, and uh, you know, I, I just wanted to help uh, have people know more about it. I was in the White House uh, during the Clinton years, uh, David, when we, I think, came back from a trip to Saudi Arabia, and uh, we landed early on a Saturday morning, sort of like President Obama's recent trip to Australia. Uh, and there was something going on at the White House that day, so a few of us needed to go back, and uh, we were sitting in the White House press office, and all of a sudden, uh, we heard all this commotion outside, and there were shots, uh, one that penetrated the White House press briefing room, the James S. S. Brady White House press briefing room, and, and bullets were strewn about, around the North Lawn. And from that day forward, and also the fact that several weeks or months before, the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City had been destroyed by uh, uh, Timothy McVeigh uh, and his accomplices, um, Pennsylvania Avenue was shut off, and so much more security was put up, not only around the White House, but around the Capitol, and Washington became more of a fortified city. Will the improvements to Decatur House and what you're doing make the White House a little more accessible than it's been over the last decade or so? Accessible intellectually, but not physically. And because of the concerns of security, uh, we have completely changed access to the White House and, and the protections there, for example. When, Lyndon, when uh, President Lincoln was president of the United States, if you wanted to go uh, meet with President Lincoln, you just walked up, knocked on the door, asked one of his secretaries if you could see him, and President Lincoln's view was he would meet anybody who showed up. And there, was no, there were no gates, no constraints. People would just walk up and ask for an appointment, and, and this happened before Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln had a lot more visitors than other presidents. And then after Lincoln, even during FDR's time, you could drive your car into the uh, the driveway in front of the White House and park it there and just watch things. There were no guards that really prevented you from doing that. Uh, when I was there in, in, under President Carter, there were no metal detectors. So you could bring a bazooka in to the uh, in your car, haul it into the Roosevelt Room across, across from the uh, Oval Office and set it up. There, was no, there were no constraints because there were no metal detectors and people weren't as worried about those kind of things then. Today, uh, for the uh, all kinds of reasons. After Ronald Reagan, the attempted assassination on Ronald Reagan, uh, after uh, all the other things that have happened in the White House and national security problems, uh, it's very difficult to get in there without lots of uh, detection and metal detectors and so forth as appropriate. So my gift will enable people to study the White House more and to learn it more about it 
but it won't mean that they can just walk up to the White House and and uh, and uh, knock on the door the way they could under under President Lincoln. Uh, still, I think the more people know about uh, history, the better off we are. You know, George Santayana, a very famous Harvard historian, famously once said, uh, "Those people who do not remember history are condemned to relive it." And those people who don't really learn about history and the mistakes we've made and some of the things we've done well, um, I, I think, are, are not really uh, doing as adequate a job as they could as a citizen. So any citizen of the United States or any resident of the United States should really learn more about the great things that have happened at the White House, the great uh, uh, historic uh, decisions that are made there. And I think they become better residents, better citizens as a result of that. So I hope people will um, get to know more about the White House through as a result of my gift. But the White House Historical Association has already done a very good job even without my gift, and I hope that they will be able to do a little bit better job even uh, now. One of the things that uh, I always enjoyed when I was serving in the George W. Bush White House was to saunter um, Jackson Place and, and head up at Decatur House and take a look at all the wonderful uh, uh, pieces of history that are there from White House ornaments to some right. of the historical publications and of course trying to add to my uh, ever-growing uh, collection of presidential cufflinks which I notice you are not wearing any today um, but I will ask you this as you think about the uh, David M. Rubenstein National Center for White House History how do you reconcile the the history of the White House with what you know of presidential libraries they're really two different things right. and your gift is going to help Americans and the people the world over to better understand the institution, the presidency, and the White House. But you're a student of history. You read voraciously, um, and you're clearly able to appreciate from the Carter Library to the present what those institutions also mean right. about the White House. Well, let me describe for listeners who may not be familiar with uh, this. Um, the first presidential library was really set up by President uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, in those days, the presidents owned their papers. And so when their administrations ended, they could take their papers back. Uh, obviously, he died in office, so it was after um, his, his uh, death that a library was set up in Hyde Park, and that was his presidential library. Uh, subsequently, other presidents said they'd like to do it, and some of his predecessors, like Herbert Hoover, said, well, if he has a library, Franklin Roosevelt, I should have one. And so ultimately, every president uh, has been building their own library since, uh, I guess, uh, Herbert Hoover. And uh, it's a very anomalous situation. The presidents of the United States have to go out and raise the money for their library. But once they raise it, uh, the library and the archives there are managed by the National Archives. And the archives now manages all of these uh, various uh, libraries, and they do an excellent job of it. Uh, they are separate facilities, though, from the White House Historical Association. The White House Historical Association is a private organization. It tries to help uh, the White House and let people know more about the White House but it isn't part of the government, whereas the presidential libraries, while they're private, they are administered by the library part, by the archives. So I always encourage people to go visit the National Archives, where you can see some of the memorabilia that is in some of the presidential libraries, but also go to the, each of the presidential libraries um, themselves. They're quite remarkable. The uh, White House Historic, Historic Association uh, also has this phenomenal collection of art and elements that are often on loan to the White House, and you have curated some right. wonderful holdings yourself. 
What made you so passionate about American history in the White House? And was this something that was on your mind even as you served uh, in the in the uh, Carter administration? Well, when I was serving the Carter administration uh, at the ages of 27 to 31, I was mostly just you know trying to get work done and probably didn't have a uh, appreciation of uh, the meaning of it as much as I did later. Um, my, my view generally is that if you have good fortune in life, uh, financial or other kinds of things, you should give back. Um, you can't take your wealth and be buried with it. Uh, the ancient Egyptian pharaohs tried that, but there's no evidence that you actually need your money in the afterlife. So my thinking is that you should give it away or do the best things you can with it while you're alive. I am one of the people who signed the giving pledge, and I'm committed to giving away a large part of my net worth, uh, maybe to the chagrin of my children, but I, I actually, they, they are very happy with it. Um, and I, I want to pursue many different areas. Now, many people are, are pursuing health or education, and I am uh, involved in those areas as well. But one area that I found by serendipity that was of interest to me, and there was an opportunity to do something, was buying historic documents. So I bought the only copy in private hands of the Magna Carta, and I gave that to on permanent loan to the, to the archives where it's on display. And that was a document that was the inspiration for the uh, Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, and so forth. So I thought it really belonged here, though, even though it wasn't technically written here in uh, 1215. My version was in 1297. Subsequent to that, I bought a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation signed by uh, Abraham Lincoln. He signed a number of copies, and I, I gave that on permanent loan to the White House, and President Obama has placed it in the Oval Office. I bought several copies of the what's known as a stone copy of the Declaration of Independence, I've lent one to the archives, one to the State Department. And I recently bought uh, the oldest map, or the first map of the United States, and I placed that on permanent loan to the Library of Congress. I just haven't announced it yet, but I guess I will be at the moment, that I just bought a rare copy of the uh, uh, 13th Amendment to the Constitution signed by Abraham Lincoln, which is the perhaps most significant amendment. It, it uh, abolished slavery. And I'll be making an announcement of what I'll do with that uh, subsequently. So I like to do this, but I don't want these things in my house as things that I can just brag about. I want them to go to places where people can see them, learn about the history of them, and, and therefore learn more about American history. And that's really what I want people to do. Uh, very often, people don't know enough about American history. There was a survey done by the Pew uh, Institute not long ago. And to my amazement, uh, when asked the question, what river did George Washington cross uh, during the Revolutionary War, something like 20% of people said the Rhine River, which is not a, obviously in the United <laughs> States. Uh, when uh, people were asked who was the first Secretary of the Treasury, I think almost 20% of the people said Larry Summers, who was not the first Secretary of Treasury. And then... Uh, Nick Brady will be so disappointed. Right. And then I, I think about a quarter of the people when asked, uh, what are the first words to the Declaration of Independence say, said, I have a dream. Now. Unfortunately, people don't know as, as much about history as they should. I'm involved with the American History Museum as part of the Smithsonian, and we're trying to get more Americans to learn more about history, but it's a slow process. David, um, Adam and I spent a while on a previous episode actually breaking down the 35 minutes of Dick DeBelt recording that President Nixon made uh, upon returning from the Lincoln Memorial, that 4 a.m. trip he made to visit with Vietnam War protesters. Right. I'm curious if you sort of dug into that recording and, you know, for, for all of the... Um, majesty of the, the pieces that you've acquired, this 35 minutes of a grainy report, recording sheds so much more light or mystery on the, the pres on President Nixon, doesn't it? Yes. Um, President Nixon, uh, interestingly, uh, uh, did tape that, but he had in his 
uh, office, as we all know, and to his regret, a taping system. Um, he got the idea from that for that from Lyndon Johnson, who told him that he should tape things, as I understand it. And there was a taping system as well that President Kennedy had. And there are some tapes in the Kennedy Library that came from that taping system. Uh, J- President Johnson taped things, and those tapes are now pretty much public, and you can listen to them on, on various uh, radio shows, as I have. President Nixon um, had a different kind of system. He was not apparently that good at turning it on and turning it off, so they ultimately had a voice-activated uh, system, and therefore sometimes he may have forgotten it was on. And then ultimately when it was revealed in the Watergate hearings, uh, you know, that people wanted to see the, the tapes. Um, many presidents, um, uh, you know, want to record history, but after Nixon, uh, no one wanted to have a voice-activated system. So what other presidents have done is to tape their memories or dictate them uh, during the office. Like President Carter, every night would dictate into a dictabelt his memories of the day, and he recently published a, a volume of, of those those kinds of things. Interestingly, for your listeners, um, the Oval Office is the most famous office, I guess, in the United States, um, but it wasn't part of the original White House. And for those who haven't visited the White House, the White House, which was opened originally in the early 1800s, was known as the mansion, the executive mansion. And there was no East Wing and there was no West Wing. The West Wing was built by FDR uh, because uh, he had... Uh, uh, not a lot of room, and he had a lot of young children. He didn't have a lot of room for staff, and he wanted to build a place for staff. So they ultimately built a, a staff place, and he didn't work out of that place for, for initially because he was still working at the executive mansion. Uh, the Ultimately, um, uh, an office was built there for the president, but it wasn't the Oval. It wasn't the, our current Oval Office. The current Oval Office was really constructed by FDR. Um, the original office of the president was in a different place, and then ultimately um, they, they created an Oval Office in the uh, part of the south part of the uh, the White House, southeast part, and and it was oval in part to kind of replicate an oval office that or an oval room that's in the mansion, and it's now a very famous office. And uh, many presidents treat it differently. Some work there, um, some work in a side office. Um, President George W. Bush, as you know, would never go into the Oval Office and didn't want anybody in without a coat and tie on, or he wanted appropriate uh, dress. And, and some presidents just don't find it an easy place to work because it's so big and airy. Some people prefer, some presidents prefer to work on the side. But wherever they work, uh, the majesty of the place is one that inspires anybody that goes into it. And very often you'll see typical situations where somebody will say, I'm going to tell the president of the United States what I really think. When they get in the Oval Office, they say, Mr. President, can I have your picture? I'm really honored to be here. Because very often when you're in that office, you get intimidated and uh, you don't tend to say what you think you're going to say. The, the history of the White House is about the people who sit behind the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office and the people, as David, you said, walk into that office and either uh, shirk or stand up to the president and say what's on their mind. What was it like for a 27-year-old lawyer uh, to go to work with Stu Eisenstadt and find himself in the Oval Office in 1977? Well, it was better for me probably than for the country because uh, I probably wasn't qualified for the job. Um, very often people get jobs in the White House staff by working in a campaign. You know, I often say that they don't do uh, merit stir, uh, you know, hiring very often in White House staffs. They hire people working in a campaign, and they may or may not be the most qualified people in the country. So at 27, three years out of law school, I have an office in the West Wing. The President of the United States, who I really didn't know before uh, he was elected, uh, was asking me my views on subjects about which I knew very little. So it is somewhat intimidating, but I... I worked long hours. I got to know uh, the president and his views, and 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 uh, got to be you know reasonably close to uh, 
uh, the domestic policy operation and other things in the White House, and I enjoyed it so much that I literally didn't take a day off for four years. I loved working there. And there were articles written about my workaholic tendencies. That wasn't, it wasn't work because I enjoyed it. And if you're doing something that you enjoy, it's really not work. So I, I thought they were four of the best years of my life. Um, I remember, the fir- I was, as I said earlier, I was the first person in the Carter years because as we were doing the transition, Dick Cheney was the chief of staff for, for Gerald Ford, and he said to the transition team, make sure you have somebody here at 12 o'clock because we're going to be gone. When the president's sworn in at 12 o'clock, they often don't come down here to 2 or 3 in the afternoon after the parades and everything, and uh, somebody ought to be here. There's going to be a national emergency. So when I went back and told uh, President Carter this, or President-elect Carter, they said, that sounds like a good idea, but we all want to go up to the inauguration. So you go into the Oval Office first, or into the Oval Office, but I mean the, the uh, White House. So at 12 o'clock, I went to the gates of the White House and said, I'm David Rubenstein from the Carter uh, White House. And they said, well, where's your ID and who cleared you in? Well, there was nobody to clear me in. I didn't know anything about it. So it took me a while to talk myself into it. Fortunately, there were no emergencies for the first couple hours. The last uh, day... We were leaving after Ronald Reagan. I was the last person out, and I knew the administration was over because as we were leaving at 12 o'clock on that day on January 20th, Pepsi machines were being brought in. Pepsi was uh, headed by Don Kendall, a prominent Republican, and the Coke machines from Atlanta, Georgia, were being hauled out, so I knew it was officially over. I was uh, thinking about my experience in the final days of the George W. Bush administration. I was there, uh, certainly not the last one out the door, but was there until about 9 o'clock at night on the 19th of January had an opportunity uh, to help facilitate an interview with uh, 41 and 43 and the presidential historian Richard Norton Smith. This interview has never been made public to this date, uh, but it'll be part of the presidential archive uh, that President Bush is putting together. I spent a few choice moments alone in the Oval Office. I spent time, as did Josh, uh, inside the executive mansion, upstairs in the yellow oval, you know, on the, the the residential setting, and in nooks and crannies uh, of the of the White House that you don't see during tours, will you share with us yes. what what was it like for you as a young staffer, a very senior staffer, well, a deputy assistant to the president? What did you see? What were the pieces of the White House that really captured your imagination back then? Well, remember, um, you have the permanent staff of the White House, people who work at at the mansion, the usher and his staff. You have secretaries who are career, more or less. And then the political people that come in each election or appointed by the president or his people are the people that are a relatively small number of people who work in that complex. Uh, The the mansion itself uh, is where the president, of course, lives. He has guests there. The dinners are there, the state dinners, and the big parties are there. But all the real work is done in the West Wing. And the First Lady has uh, the East Wing where she um, does things that, that that are relevant to her. And there are some other offices in the, in the East Wing um, that was built after the West Wing. Uh, it's a large complex, uh, I think uh, uh, many acres. and, and uh, 18 acres to be eight, exact. 18 acres. And uh, everything is there. The president has a bowling alley if he wants. There's a swimming pool. There's tennis court. Now there's a basketball court where the tennis court sort of was. Um, there was an indoor swimming pool built for uh, Franklin Roosevelt with the contributions of dimes of young children so he would have a place as a polio victim to swim every day. It was good for his health. Later in the Nixon administration, it was covered over and made a, uh, a press briefing room. Uh, when you work in the White House, um, it's kind of an awe-inspiring thing because uh, all power in the world in those days and to some extent these days kind of it kind of flows to the to the White House, and so you will see the most important people in the world coming through there. So as you're sitting in the West Wing uh, reception room, standing there, you will see the most prominent business people 
uh, heads of state, uh, most prominent labor leaders, the most prominent politicians in the United States and the world coming through, and you're just kind of, your jaw can drop open at all the people that are there. You don't want to say, hey, can I have your autograph? But you're thinking of it because you see so many people you know you're not otherwise normally going to get to see. Uh, when people go in to see the president in the Oval Office, as I say, they do get intimidated, uh, but eventually they, they, you know, they want to have their picture taken. Did and, you travel and, with the boss? I, I did because um, uh, of a couple reasons. Um, I, I traveled almost everywhere with him in the United States because, uh, among other things, um, he always wanted to have somebody who knew the domestic policy. And so one of my jobs was to travel with him because if uh, whenever he made a statement, since I knew his positions very well and the history of what he had said, I could either correct things or add things. But uh, he may have made a mistake in the beginning in getting me into that position. Somebody had He had asked uh, my boss, Stuart Eisenstadt, to compile all the promises that he had made in the campaign to make sure that he honored all his promises. There wasn't the inter- Internet in those days, so nobody had a way of easily collecting them. So we went through the transition. We got all his promises. We gave him the book. It was then called, uh, humorously by some, Promises, Promises. But by knowing all of his promises that he'd made over a two-year period of time, I was often invited to sit in his interviews and other things so I could correct something that might have been said wrong or, or make sure that he was complying with his promises as he, as he wanted to. So um, I, I did get to travel with him. And, you know, as, as you know, it's a very heady experience. Air Force One in those days was not the 747. It was the, um, the Boeing, uh, I think it was 707. 707. But, um, you know, in those days we didn't know about a 747 uh, first uh, Air Force One, and it was incredible to be there. And what was most impressive was in those days you could call anybody in the world from the plane. Now, today that's not such novel technology, but you can imagine the impact. When you work in the White House, if you call anybody and the White House operator says, David Rubenstein's on the phone from the White House. People will come out of the bathroom. They'll get up. They'll get out of bed. They'll do anything to take a call from the White House. You can imagine how much even greater that um, feeling is when you say, call from Air Force One for somebody. People will do anything to take a call from Air Force One. Um, It was quite a heady experience to be on Air Force One. I also had the great privilege to um, go on what's called Marine One, which is the helicopter. The helicopter the president takes off in the South Lawn. Um, you know, occasionally I was invited on it. Then, you know, I'm a, you know, a person of modest background. Uh, my parents, uh, you know, sometimes they would be on the South Lawn watching their only child walk out of the Oval Office with the President of the United States, just the two of us, and we're getting on Marine One to go on a trip somewhere. Um, you know, it's not the kind of stuff that you uh, normally think is going to happen to you when you're three years out of law school. So I enjoyed it, and it was a fantasy world for me to some extent. And uh, I recommend to all young people who care about public service to try to work in the government, if you can, if you get very lucky, work in the White House. It's something you will live uh, to remember the rest of your life, and it'll be probably the most enjoyable experience you'll have your entire life. And that certainly applies for Adam Belmar and me. David Rubenstein, you know, as the White House begins to get decked out for the holiday season, I'm reminded of Jackie Kennedy's first, uh, I think, CBS show in which she did her famous White House tour. And uh, thanks to your... uh, incredible generosity of $10 million to begin the to launch the David M. Rubenstein National Center for White House History. We've just touched a little tiny fingernail of some White House history today, but you will be able to access so much of it more once your project is completed. Thank you again for your service and for bringing the White House closer to so many people. Thank you for what you're doing to get the people to know much more about the White House and the presidency. Thank you very much for inviting me.
Adam, you know, in my time in the White House, there were a handful of photographers who I traveled thousands and thousands of miles with. And if, as I thought of President Obama's trip back on Air Force One from Australia all the way back to Andrews Air Force Base, I think a trip consuming 23 hours in the air, I thought of those wonderful flights of equal length that I took with Diana Walker, a legend of Washington photojournalism, a person whose work has been on the cover of Time magazine scores of times, and who, to me, embodied the most elegant form of Washington's photojournalism. And there were many pictures that iconic pictures that she made in my presence, but she'd frankly been doing it for years before that, going, I think, back to Ronald Reagan or before then, and still shooting today uh, on a globetrotting mission with Hillary Clinton photographing the Secretary of State. And as her work has spanned so many decades and now is venturing into new areas, covering uh, events happening in California, uh, covering uh, Steve Jobs throughout his career, I really wanted to have her on so she could tell us some about her career and the things she's doing now. And the uh, White House photographer for Time magazine across five administrations joins <laughs> us today. Welcome to Polyoptics. <laughs> I knew I was old, but... <laughs> Five administrations? That's what wow. they say. You can only verify. Yeah, well, I'll have to go on the <laughs> Does net. Does memory find serve out. well enough? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Diana, are your bags unpacked from your most recent trip? <laughs> Barely. And I certainly learned what jet lag was on this on this trip with uh, Mrs. Clinton. Uh, she is indefatigable. I'm afraid I'm fatigable. <laughs> <laughs> Give so, us a play by yeah, play. Tell us all about it. Oh, it was a great trip. Um, Time called me up and said, are you up for it? And I said, well, why not? So um, off I went. And I was um, shocked the first five minutes. I was uh, uh, in the company of the of the press corps surrounding um, the Secretary of State when I was complaining about how old I was. And one of um, Secretary Clinton's key uh, operatives is a wonderful young woman called Caroline Adler. And she came up to me and she said, oh, Diana, did you know that your son was my high school modern European history teacher? Like a dagger <laughs> to the heart. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you all travel on this trip, and uh, how long was it? It was a, a week's trip, a Sunday to to Sunday, and it was. Um, I didn't really know where we were going until we went, um, or we were weren't supposed to discuss it with anybody because we went to such sort of security um, hot spots as um, Tripoli, Libya and Kabul, Afghanistan, and Islamabad, Pakistan. And to give people some context, this trip occurred, uh, and you were in Libya at the time when Muammar Gaddafi uh, was captured and killed. Actually, uh, we had left. Had you just left? You yes. were in, you were in uh, Afghanistan? It was quite amazing because the secretary, answering a question from young people in the audience, uh, said, well, yes, I hope that he's either killed or captured very soon. And two days later, <laughs> he was uh, killed, and it was quite, uh, quite dramatic. But by that time, we were on our way to Uzbekistan, I think. <laughs> what, Diana, you and I traveled with President Clinton and the First Lady Hillary Clinton for many years. You actually covered Governor Clinton and the First Lady of Arkansas, Hillary Clinton. Uh, how has 
she changed as you see her through the lens and and what how would you define sort of what she currently represents as she travels around the country around the world as America's chief diplomat well you know I I'm s- supposed to still see um, people without um, uh, prejudice according to wh- what my politics are um, I find it's hard not to talk about Secretary Clinton in superlatives because um, it seems to me that no matter what she takes on, she takes it on with every every bit of um, brain power and energy that she has, and she has lots. And I just see um, a fascinating, incredibly competent um woman uh, doing a, an awfully good job, and um, she doesn't ever slow down. I think it's amazing. I, I photographed her both her Senate campaigns, and I did see a lot of her um, when I was photographing President Clinton, and um, she's remarkable. I would love to take people back a little bit to perhaps the very beginning. Uh, of your career at the White House. You were, you were along with a, a number of other women who were doing this at such a high level, even back in the uh, 1970s. Yes. You know, women in, in um, photography, um, uh, there are many women in the history of photography, and in um, photojournalism, um, particularly, there are so many women out there and um, very active. And when I first came to the White House, um, the New York Times had a woman, Teresa Zabala, the Newsweek magazine had a, had a woman, the Washington Post did, and it always has been that way. Um, although you kind of had to earn your stripes before some of the... Uh, male photojournalists would accept you, <laughs> but I think that that was the time um, of our lives, and um, nowadays there's just, uh, it's wide open for men and women. You have a book, Diana, public and private, 20 years photographing the presidency, and I'm looking at some of the pictures uh, that are published in that book, and we'll put them up on our website, polyoptics.com. But as I as I click through some of the administrations, and Adam and I talk <clears throat> with some great fondness of the, uh, the polyoptics of Ronald Reagan and of mm-hmm. Bill Clinton and even of George Bush before him, but I'm, I'm looking at Reagan and Nancy on the deck of the USS Missouri, I think. I'm looking at George Bush in Saudi Arabia meeting the troops uh, in the after it, before Desert Storm. I'm looking at Bill Clinton uh, emerging from the limousine in Red Square. Uh, what were the when you were traveling with these presidents and making these pictures? How how were you able to get yourself into position, and how did you know when you had a, a shot worth keeping? I, I I was going to say what I can tell you is when I knew I had a shot a shot that wasn't worth keeping. I I was thinking of a of a um, I'm not sure this is answering you exactly what you what you're asking me, but I'll tell you anyway. Um, when I was off with um, George Herbert Walker Bush Bush 41, uh, we we had just gotten to Gdansk and it was a a very important photograph to um, for time that week um, to see Bush with uh, Lekwalesa and go to Gdansk. This was news because every, every, everything was shifting in Poland. 
And um, I, w- <laughs> I saw that the picture needed to be taken from behind the president, uh, not from down on the camera stand. And I went to uh, the, your counterpart, um, Josh, yeah. and said, um, please, can a pool go up behind the president? And they, he said, absolutely, come with me. So we went up and we positioned ourselves behind the president. And, and indeed, like Walensa and his wife and Barbara Bush and the president came, and they, we knew they would turn around because behind us, way up in the air, was this tall building and all these people were falling I know out this of the photograph and, oh. and the angle to, that you've made it at uh, is what made it happen what well, made it work well they were all waving out the mm. window and we just knew the president would turn around and then you could see the whole crowd behind him and so uh being the leader of this this posse that went up on the stage i was very excited about this picture and we raised our cameras the president came up and the four of them turned around lifted their arms and i my camera was dead, absolutely oh, dead as a doornail. And I kept looking at it, and it was dead. So then this quick dance of changing, changing cameras, changing lenses, and finally I got it all set, and I lifted my camera up, and of course they turned away, and they were facing the front. And I thought, what am I going to do? Well, I did something that I never had done before, and I never did it afterwards. But I yelled at the President of the United States, and I said, Mr. President, sir, please, just one more time. <laughs> and, and he got the four of them, and he turned around, and he lifted his arm up, and he said, How's this, Lady Di? <laughs> just about that told me more about George Bush and what kind of a man he was and how kind and generous he was and thoughtful. Um, he he saved me absolutely saved. Josh me. has talked about this and it has been my experience as well that presidents of the United States uh, tend to know their photographers rather well. They have great respect and appreciation for the job that you all do and. Uh, there are times when you're ushered in to the Oval Office so quickly to mm. make a shot, or maybe even one of these times is so often you've done uh, behind the scenes where it's alone time with the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about your strategy and, and how you conduct yourself uh, when you're alone with the president of the United States, or even when you're among a, a gaggle of, of pool uh, photographers who are ushered in for that pool spray in the Oval. Well, when we were ushered in for that um, that pool shot, as you describe it, um, my main focus is to get in, get down, and have them straight ahead of me, and uh, shoot that picture of the of the president with his guest, wherever it is, and then as fast as I could, I would look around the room and see if anything else was going on in the room whether um, Colin Powell was in a corner having a conversation um, with the chief of staff or something else so that you'd have um, more than just, let's call it the money picture, the straight on picture that you were in there for. When I was behind the scenes um, trying to be a fly on the wall, I never engaged the president if I could help it. 
because the minute he spoke to me, that ruined the picture because I was there to watch how he related to other people or if he was alone, how he worked alone. Um, not, uh, not, I didn't want to have a conversation with him. So when I was changing film or anything that I knew was attracting a little bit of attention because of the noise, I'd always keep my eyes down because I was afraid that they'd kind of notice that I was in the room and ask me to leave or I would uh, keep averting my eyes from from the the White House uh, press aides. The Josh Kings <laughs> and Adam Belmars <laughs> looking Adam by the and side Josh, of the I would just hide from you as long as I could so you'd forget I was in there. But uh, you seldom forgot. <laughs> Th- there is an amazing picture of you in uh, uh, that you took in one of those moments when basically you were in the room inside the room it's these holding rooms diana where oh. presidents go uh, are, are always have at their available whenever they are traveling usually it's a, a dressing room of a theater or a classroom of a school and it's a place where maybe the white house has set up a sofa or some glasses mm-hmm. of water or fruit where they can yes. do a little brief before the the shot and there's a picture that uh is really iconic it's former secretary of defense bill cohen uh Madeleine Albright, Sandy Berger, National Security Advisor, and President Clinton. And the way they're holding their hands, it's basically a see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil setup. And I can only imagine how you happen to be in the, a fly on the wall for that moment. <laughs> Josh, it's funny about that picture because um, I, it's been um, publicized. I mean, it's been published many times. And I've had people ask me, um, how did you set that picture up? And I'm always absolutely thunderstruck that anybody would think that a photographer would look at the President of the United States and say, well, you look like one of those monkeys, hear no evil, see no evil. Of course it was, it was generated by them. And I was absolutely um, dumbstruck. I had no idea why they did this. And I was watching them, but when I'm working, I can't hear. Um, which has made um, me very, very trustworthy because I, I also believe that it is not my job to report what I saw in the room. Uh, that's the reporter's job, not mine. And, um, but I also, I'd be so inaccurate if you asked me. And in this case, later, after I had made this picture, um, and I went and published the, my first book, Public and Private, um, I went back to talk to the presidents and first ladies to find out what actually was going on in the pictures that I was going to have in the book, and I asked them what they liked and didn't like and and what they were doing, and that made captions for the book, which which was interesting. And um, I got to sit and talk to Bill Clinton for, for a while when I went to show him the pictures, and I said, do you remember how this happened? And he said, oh, yes, I remember it very well. He said, I was sitting there on that couch, and in walked Madeline, and I said, you come over and sit next to me. And then Bill Cohen walked in, and I said, you come sit next to me. So there the three of us were, and Sandy came in, and he was there was no place on the couch, so he just went on the end. And <laughs> he said, and I thought the three of us sitting there kind of looked like those monkeys. You know, evil, see no evil. <laughs> 
And I said, well, all I can tell you is I called your press secretary as fast as possible later that day to tell him not to worry. I w- we were not going to publish that picture that week. And <laughs> it was just one of those funny things that happened to it just happened. As we have these conversations uh, with iconic photographers uh, of the White House here on Polyoptics, one of the things that comes up again and again is this point that you just made, that as you worked, you could not hear. Mm-hmm. And indeed, your still photographs have no sound associated with them. But our ability to see clearly through that quiet lens Uh, lends so much humanity to subjects. Your second book, uh, The Bigger Picture, uh, included work that you had done over a long period of time photographing someone we have recently lost, Steve Jobs, uh, the co-founder of Apple Computer, someone whose legacy is still being uh, thought of because he's had such a profound effect, but a man with whom you had a personal relationship in being tasked year after year by Time Magazine. Talk to us for a second, uh, Diana, about that. Well, um, Steve was a remarkable person, as um, everyone knows. And I was sent out, um, I covered the White House on an every other month basis. So um, I had time to do other kinds of stories. And I believe I was sent out the first time because um, they thought that perhaps um, I might be able to get on with him. He had a reputation of being a bit prickly. And I guess because I was from Washington, where where diplomacy is key, they uh, sent me out for the first time. And um, we just, we simply hit it off, and we we became friends. And um, over the years, time continued to send me out to photograph him. And um, he would let me just kind of hang with him, um, which was sort of like the, like the work behind, doing behind the scenes work with the president. And instead I was doing behind the scenes with Steve Jobs. And, um, but on your first meeting, yeah. he kind of thought that you were there to do something very different, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> Which I really think is very special. And I'd love for you to tell our polyoptics audience about this. Well, um, the first time I went out, Time was um, going to do uh, a cover on the computer itself as the machine of the year, uh, n- not, not a person this time. It was going to be the computer, and I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember. Um, the cover was a George Siegel sculpture of a man seated in front of a computer, and uh, and someone photographed that. And so I think Steve was uh, as patient as he was with me that first time, uh, and he did absolutely everything I suggested. I mean, he even stood on this big cube that said Apple. He got up on the top of it for me when I asked him. And this was the one outside of the uh, outside. the building. We've seen that photograph. Yes, uh, it's, it's in the National Portrait right. Gallery right now. And they have and a lovely And when he passed, the, the networks were, were playing that photo, among others, I think, that you Yes, took. that's right. And in Walter Isaacson's book, he, uh, does, he honors me with all of the uh, pictures of Steve, I mean, many, many pictures of Steve in his book. But um, 
I think he he agreed to do all the things I asked him because I think he must have thought that he was man of the year. Um, but uh, well, come alas. on, he had he had Diana Walker come out to to, <laughs> to 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 Cupertino, California. He had to have some idea that maybe he hmm. was the cover. Well, he was not the cover that year. I'm afraid it was Machine of the Year. But it started a really wonderful relationship that went on for many many years, and I mourn his loss with everyone else. And history shows that he got his share of covers over the years. <laughs> yes, uh, he did. And I think the the amount of space that Time Magazine um, devoted to um, his image um, when he died um, was was extraordinary, and it um, it 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 really um, honored me too. I I was I was so uh, moved by the way they used those pictures. Um, and- that I took over many years. And reading some of Walter's book and so much of the companion analysis that has been in other publications, mm-hmm. you got a sense that however Steve Jobs's brain was wired, he had an acute sense of the impact that the visual had on the viewer and also the buyer of computer products. And did you get a sense that, you know, while he might not have invited a lot of reporters in to talk on the record, and Walter Mossberg had many off-the-record conversations with him, that he knew the power of him representing the brand as seen through your lens? I think I think that Steve understood when, when magazines and newspapers and the like wanted um, to photograph him because he... Um, he knew that being on the cover of Time magazine would would do him um, a lot of good. I think he forgave us over the years things that we wrote that that he might not have liked or approved of. Um, he knew uh, that, of course, that it would be helpful for Apple. One of the questions I had for you was, as you think back on your career and the presidents that you've covered, what reflections do you have? What parallels would you draw for us when you think on two different Bushes in the White House, knowing H.W. Bush 41 the way that you did and your appreciation for that presidency? Um, straight up uh, uh, until this period of time where you've now covered the Secretary of State, but you knew her as a completely different woman as the First Lady. Talk to us for a second about the reflections that you have on on that career and the presidents that you've known and covered. Well, it's um, I hardly know where to start with that question. Um, I have to I have to uh, admit that probably not having covered um, George W. Bush, um, my Experience with the presidents really did end with um, with Bill Clinton, and I did do John Kerry's campaign and Hillary Clinton's campaign, but I haven't covered the White House. And I must say, probably um, 9/11 has changed a great deal um, at the White House in terms of just uh, travel and and um, access, um, which must be less than it was in my day, um, but. As I look back on this um, this group of people, I, it, it's a, it's stunning to me that um, how how much I like and admire each and every one that I covered. Um, it's and you know it's you don't let your political uh, views 
um, interfere, and they just don't. It's it's as if you're looking at a very very interesting human being, a fascinating human being, and everybody around him is very interesting to you when you're covering the White House, um, and I. I've been very admiring of a lot of what the presidents have done since they've been been president. And I um, I just, I can't tell you how much I, it sounds so Pollyanna-ish, but how much I enjoyed each and every one of them and what, what fascinating people they were. And to have the opportunity to be there for an audience, for for me to be able to take pictures that that I could then that could then be published and it was as if I'm there for you and so I'm going to get the most out of this room and this moment and whatever's going on in here you who were going to open time magazine or if it was published elsewhere I I wanted you to see what I was seeing it, really incredibly lucky to have you stop in and be here with us on Polyoptics. Uh, Diana Walker of Time Magazine, uh, our pleasure. Thank you. And my pleasure.